0: Chapter 3. The Holon I ask the reader to remember that what is most obvious may be most worth of analysis. Fertile vistas may open out when commonplace facts are examined from a fresh point of view. L.L. White The concept of hierarchic order occupies a central place in this book. Unless the reader should think that I am riding a private hobby horse, let me reassure him that this concept has a long and respectable ancestry. So much so, that defenders of orthodoxy are inclined to dismiss it as old hat, and often in the same breath to deny its validity. Yet I hope to show as we go along that this old hat, handled with some affection, can produce lively rabbits. The Parable of the Two Watchmakers. Let me start with a parable. I owe it to Professor H. A. Simon, designer of logic computers and chess-playing machines, but I have taken the liberty of elaborating on it. There were once two Swiss watchmakers named Bios and Mekos, who made very fine and expensive watches. The names may sound a little strange, but their fathers had a smattering of Greek and were fond of riddles. Although their watches were in equal demand, Bios prospered, while Mekos just struggled along. In the end, he had to close his shop and take a job as a mechanic with Bios. The people in the town argued for a long time over the reasons for this development and each had a different theory to offer, until the true explanation leaked out and proved to be both simple and surprising. The watches they made consisted of about 1,000 parts each, but the two rivals had used different methods to put them together. Mekos had assembled his watches bit by bit, rather like making a mosaic floor out of small colored stones. Thus each time when he was disturbed in his work he had to put down a partly assembled watch. It fell to pieces and he had to start again from scratch. Bios, on the other hand, had designed a method of making watches by constructing, for a start, sub-assemblies of about ten components, each of which held together as an independent unit. Ten of these sub- assemblies could then be fitted together into a subsystem of a higher order and 10 of these subsystems constituted the whole watch. This method proved to have two immense advantages. In the first place, each time there was an interruption or a disturbance and Bios had to put down or even drop the watch he was working on, did not decompose into its elementary bits. Instead of starting all over again, he merely had to reassemble that particular subassembly on which he was working at the time, so that at worst, if the disturbance came when he had nearly finished the sub-assembly in hand, he had to repeat nine assembly operations, and at best, none at all. Now it is easy to show mathematically that if a watch consists of a thousand bits, and if some disturbance occurs at an average of once in every hundred assembling, operations, then MECOS will take four thousand times longer to assemble a watch than BIOS. Instead of a single day, it will take eleven years. And if for mechanical bits we substitute amino acids, protein molecules, organelles, or so on, the ratio between the time scales becomes astronomical. Some calculations indicate that the whole lifetime of the Earth would be insufficient for producing even an amoeba, unless he becomes converted to Bios's method and proceeds hierarchically, from simple subassemblies to more complex ones. Simon concludes, Complex systems will evolve from simple systems much more rapidly if there are stable intermediate forms than if there are not. The resulting complex forms in the former case will be hierarchic. We have only to turn the argument around to explain the observed predominance of hierarchies among the complex systems nature presents to us. Among possible complex forms hierarchies are the ones that have the time to evolve. A second advantage of Bios' method is, of course, that the finished product will be incomparably more resistant to damage and much easier to maintain, regulate, and repair than Makros' unstable mosaic of atomic bits. We do not know what forms of life have evolved on other planets in the universe, but we can safely assume that wherever there is life, it must be hierarchically organized. Enter Janus. If we look at any form of social organization with some degree of coherence and stability, from insect state to pentagon, we shall find that it is hierarchically ordered. The same is true of the structure of living organisms and their ways of functioning, from instinctive behavior to the sophisticated skills of piano playing and talking. And it is equally true of the process of becoming, phylogeny, ontogeny, the acquisition of knowledge. However, if the branching tree is to represent more than a superficial analogy, there must be certain principles or laws which apply to all levels of a given hierarchy, to all the varied types of hierarchy just mentioned in other words which define the meaning of hierarchic order in the pages that follow i shall outline several of these principles they may at first sight look a little abstract yet taken together they shed a new light on some old problems the first universal characteristic of hierarchies is the relativity and indeed ambiguity of the terms part and whole when applied to any of the sub-assemblies again It is the very obviousness of the feature which makes us overlook its implications. A part, as we generally use the word, means something fragmentary and incomplete, which by itself would have no legitimate existence. On the other hand, a whole is considered as something complete in itself which needs no further explanation. But wholes and parts, in this obtuse sense, just do not exist anywhere, either in the domain of living organisms or of social organizations. What we find are intermediary structures on a series of levels in an ascending order of complexity. subholes which display according to the way you look at them some of the characteristics commonly attributed to the holes and some of the characteristics commonly attributed to parts. We've seen the impossibility of the task of chopping up speech into elementary atoms or units either on the phonetic or on the syntactic levels. Phonemes, words, phrases are holes in their own right but parts of a large unit, so are cells, tissues, organs, families, clans, tribes. The members of a hierarchy, like the Roman god Janus, all have two faces looking in opposite directions. The face turned towards the subordinate levels is that of a self-contained whole. The face turned upward, towards the apex, that of a dependent part. One is the face of the master, the other face is of the servant. This Janus effect is a fundamental characteristic of subholes. In all types of hierarchies. But there is no satisfactory word in our vocabulary to refer to these Janus faced entities. To talk of sub or sub assemblies, substructures, sub skills, subsystems, is awkward and tedious. It seems preferable to coin a new term to designate these nodes on a hierarchic tree which behave partly as wholes or wholly as parts, according to the way you look at them. The term I would propose is holon, from the Greek holos, equals whole. The suffix on, which, as in proton or neutron, suggests a particle or part. A man, wrote Ben Jonson coins not a new word without some peril. For if it happens to be conceived, the praise is but moderate. If refused, the scone is assured. Yet I think the holon is worth the risk because it fills a genuine need. It also symbolizes the missing link, or rather series of links, between the atomistic approach of the behaviorist and the holistic approach of the gestalt psychologist. The gestalt school has considerably enriched our knowledge of visual perception and succeeded in softening up the rigid attitude of its opponents to some extent. But in spite of its lasting merits, holism, as a general attitude to psychology, turned out to be as one-sided as atomism was, because both treated whole and part as absolutes. Both failed to take into account the hierarchic scaffolding of intermediate structures of sub-holes. If we replace for a moment the image of the inverted tree by that of a pyramid, we can say that the behaviorist never gets higher up than the bottom layer of stones. The holist never gets down from the apex. In fact, the concept of the whole proved just as elusive as that of the elementary part, and when he discusses language, the gestaltist finds himself in the same quandary as the behaviorist. To quote James Jenkins again, there is an infinite set of sentences in English whose production and understanding is part of the daily commas with language, and it is clear that neither the SR nor the gestalt approach is capable of coping with the problems involved in the generation and understanding of these sentences. We can't regard a sentence as a holistic, unanalyzable unit as the gestaltist might maintain one should. One cannot suppose that the sentence is regarded as a perpetual unity which has welded its elements together in some unique pattern, as is the usual gestalt analysis of perpetual phenomena. Nor do we find holes on levels lower than the sentence. Phrases, words, syllables, phonemes are not parts and not holes, but holons. The two-term part whole paradigm is deeply ingrained in our unconscious habits of thought, It will make a great difference to our mental outlook when we succeed in breaking away from it. Social Holons. Chapter 2 I discussed the hierarchic structure of language. Let us now briefly turn to a quite different kind of hierarchy, social organization. The individual, qua, biological organism, constitutes a nicely integrated hierarchy of molecules, cells, organs, and organ systems. Looking inward into the space enclosed by the boundaries of his skin, he can rightly assert that he is something complete and unique but facing outward, he is constantly, sometimes pleasantly, sometimes painfully, reminded that he is a part, an elementary unit in one of the several social hierarchies. The reason why any relatively stable society, whether of animals or humans, must be hierarchically structured, can again be illustrated by the watchmaker's parable. Without stable sub-assemblies, social groupings, and subgroupings, the whole simply could not hold together. In a military hierarchy, the holons are companies, battalions, regiments, etc., and the branches of the trees stand for lines of communication and command. The number of levels which a hierarchy comprises, in this case from the commanding general to individual soldier, determines whether it is shallow or deep, and the number of holons on any given level we shall call, after Simon, its span. A primitive horde of tribesmen is a very shallow hierarchy with perhaps two or three levels, chiefdom and lesser chieftains. The large span to each. Conversely, some Latin American armies of the past are said to have numbered one general to each private soldier, which would be the limit case of a hierarchy turning into a ladder. The efficient working of a complex hierarchy must obviously depend, among other things, on the proper ratio of depth to span, something analogous to the Greek sculptor's golden section, or rather to lacubusier's hierarchic modulator theory. A society without hierarchic structures would be as chaotic as the random motions of gas molecules flying, colliding, and rebounding in all directions, but the structuring is obscured by the fact that no advanced human society, not even a totalitarian state, is a monolithic structure patterned into one single hierarchy. This may be the case in some very unspoiled tribal societies, where the exigencies of the family kinship clan-tribe hierarchy completely control the individual's existence. The medieval church and modern totalitarian nations have tried to establish equally effective monolithic hierarchies, with only limited success. Complex societies are structured by several types of interlocking hierarchies, and control by higher authority is only one among them. I shall call these authority-yielding hierarchies, control hierarchies. Obvious examples are government administrations, military, ecclesiastic, academic, professional, and business hierarchies. Control may be vested in individuals or institutions, bosses, or anonymous treasury departments. It may be rigid or elastic, it may be guided to a greater or less extent by feedback from the lower echelons, electorate, employees, student bodies. But each hierarchy must nevertheless display a well articulated tree structure, without which anarchy would result, as it does when some social upheaval puts an axe to the trunk of the tree. Entwined with these control hierarchies are others, based on social cohesion, geographical distribution, etc. There are the family, clan, subcaste, caste caste hierarchies, and their modern versions. Interlocking with them are the hierarchies based on geographical neighborhood. Old towns like Paris, Vienna, or London have their quarters, each of them relatively self-sufficient, with its local shops, familiar cafes, pubs, milkmen, and sweeps. Each is a kind of local village, a social holon which again is part of a larger division—left bank, right bank, city and west end, amusement center and civic center, parks, suburbs—old towns notwithstanding their architectural diversity—seem to have grown like organisms, and to have an individual life of their own. Towns which have mushroomed up too fast have a depressing amorphousness because they lack the hierarchic structure of organic development. They seem to have been built not by bios, but by mecos. Thus, the complex fabric of social life can be dissected into a variety of hierarchic scaffoldings, as anatomists dissects muscles, nerves, and other correlated structures from the pulpy mess. Without this attribute of dissectability, the concept of the hierarchy would have a degree of arbitrariness. We are only justified to talk of trees if we are able to identify the nodes and branches. In the case of a government department or a business concern, dissection is easy. The branching tree chart may actually hang on the office wall. The simplest type of chart, without cross connections, will usually look something like this. Let this represent a government department, such as the Home Office. Then each holon, each box in the second row will represent a branch of it. Immigration, Scotland Yard, Prison Commission, etc. Each box in the third row of sub etc. Now which are the criteria which justify dissecting the Home Office in this and no other way? Or to put it differently, how did the maker of the chart define his holons? may have been shown a town map indicating home office buildings and plans of each building, but that would not be enough, and sometimes even misleading, because some department may be housed in several buildings in different parts of the town, and several departments may share the same building. What defines each box as an entity is the function or task assigned to it, the nature of the work which the people in each department do. There is, of course, in any efficient hierarchy, a tendency to keep people working on the same task in the same room building. To that extent, spatial distribution enters into the picture, but only to that extent. Office boys and telephones bridge the distances between functionally related desks, as nerves and hormones do in the control hierarchies of the living organism. There is not only cohesion within each holon, but also separation between different holons to lend precision to the chart. People who work within a given department transact much more business with each other than with the people in other departments. Moreover, when one department requests information or faction from another department, this is not as a rule done by direct person-to-person contact, but through official channels involving the heads of each department. In other words, the lines of control run along the branches of the tree up and down. There are no horizontal shortcuts in an ideal control hierarchy. In other types of hierarchies, the holons cannot be easily defined by their function or task. We cannot define the function of a family clan or tribe. Nevertheless, as in the previous example, the members of each of these holons function together, cohere, interact, much more with each other than with members of other holons. And if business is to be transacted between two clans or tribes, it is again done via the chieftains or elders. These ties of cohesion and boundaries of separation are both the result of shared traditions, such as the laws of kinship and the resulting codes of behavior. In their assemblies, they form a pattern of rule-governed behavior. It is this pattern which lends the group a stability and cohesion, and which defines it as a social holon, with an individuality of its own. We must distinguish, however, between the rules which govern individual behavior and those which guide the activities of the group as a whole. The individual even may be unaware of the fact that his behavior is rule-governed, and no more able to name the rules which guide his conduct than he is able to name those which guide his speech. The activities of the social holon, on the other hand, depend not only on the complex interactions between its parts, but also on its interaction as a whole with other holons on its own, higher level of the hierarchy. And these cannot be inferred from the lower level any more than the function of the nervous system can be inferred from the level of the individual nerve cell, or the rules of syntax can be inferred from the rules of phonology we can dissect a complex whole in its composite holons of the second and third order and so on, but we cannot reduce it to a sum of its parts nor predict its properties from those of its parts. The hierarchy concept of levels of organization in itself implies a rejection of the reductionist view that all phenomena of life consciousness included can be reduced to and explained by physico-chemical laws. Thus a stable social holon the individuality or profile, whether it is a poppin, tribe, or a treasury department. Every closely-knit social body sharing, a common territory, and or a code of explicit and implicit laws, customs and beliefs tends to preserve and assert its pattern, or else it could not qualify as a stable holon. In a primitive society, the tribe might be the highest unit of the shallow hierarchy, a more or less self-contained whole, but in a complex society, with its many leveled hierarchies, It is equally essential that each holon, whether the administrative department, a local department, a local government, or a fire brigade, should operate its autonomous self-contained unit without division of labor or delegation of powers according to the hierarchic schema, no society can function effectively. Let us revert for a moment to our home office example and let one box be the Department of Immigration. In order to operate a self-reliant unit, the department must be equipped with a set of instructions and regulations, the department must be equipped with a set of instructions and regulations enabling it to take routine contingencies and its stride without having to consult higher authority in each particular case. In other words, what enables the department to function in this efficient way, as an autonomous holon, is once more a set of fixed rules. It's canon, but here again there will be cases where the rules can be interpreted in this way or that, and so leave room for more than one decision. Whatever the nature of the hierarchical organization, its constituent holons are defined by fixed rules and flexible strategies. In the present example too, it is obvious that the individual codes which guide and conduct of the people who work in the department are not the same as the rules which determine the actions of the department. Mr. Smith may be willing to grant a visa to an applicant on the grounds of compassion, but the regulations say differently and we find a further parallel to previous examples. Page 43. When the rules allow more than one course of action, the matter must be referred to the head of the department, who might find it advisable to appeal for a decision to a higher level of the hierarchy. And there again, strategic considerations of a higher order may arise, such as the availability of housing, the color problem, the labor situation. There may even be conflict between home office policy and the Ministry of Economics. Once more, we are moving in a regressing series, although in this case, of course, it is not an infinite regress. To repeat, it is essential for the stability of an efficient functioning of the body social that each of its subdivisions should operate as an autonomous self-reliant unit which, though subject to control from above, must have a degree of independence and take routine contingencies in its stride without asking higher authority for instructions. Otherwise, the communication channels would become overloaded, the whole system clogged up, higher echelons would be kept occupied with petty detail and enable it to concentrate on more important factors. The Basic Polarity However, the rules or codes which govern a social holon act not merely as negative constraints imposed on its actions, but also as positive precepts, maxims of conduct, or moral imperatives. As a consequence, every holon will tend to persist in and assert its particular pattern of activity. This self-assertive tendency is a fundamental and universal characteristic of Holons, which manifests itself on every level of the social hierarchy, and as we shall see in every other type of hierarchy. On the level of the individual, a certain amount of self-assertiveness, ambition, initiative, competition, is indispensable in a dynamic society. At the same time, of course, he is dependent on, and must be integrated into, his tribe or social group. If he is a well-adjusted person, the self-assertive tendency and its opposite, integrative tendency, are more or less equally balanced. He lives, so long as things are normal, in a kind of dynamic equilibrium with his social environment. Under conditions of stress, however, the equilibrium is upset, leading to emotionally disordered behavior. No man is an island, he is a holon. A Janus-faced entity who, looking inward, sees himself as a self-contained unique whole. Looking outward as a dependent part. His self-assertive tendency is the dynamic manifestation of his unique wholeness, his autonomy and independence as a whole on. Its equally universal antagonist, the integrative tendency, expresses his dependence on the larger whole to which he belongs. His partness, the polarity of these two tendencies or potentials, is one of the leitmotifs of the present theory. Empirically, it can be traced in all phenomena of life, theoretically, it is derived from the pot whole dichotomy inherent in the concept of the multi-layered hierarchy. Philosophical implications will be discussed in later chapters. For the time being, let me repeat that the self-assertive tendency is the dynamic expression of the holon's wholeness, the integrative tendency, the dynamic expression of its partness. The manifestations of the two tendencies on different levels go by different names, but they are expressions the same polarity running through the whole series. The self-assertive tendencies of the individual are known as rugged individualism, competitiveness, etc. When we come to larger ons, we speak of clannishness, clickness, class consciousness, esprit de corps, local patriotism, nationalism, etc. The integrative tendencies, on the other hand, are manifested in cooperativeness, disciplined behavior, loyalty, self-effacement, devotion to duty, internationalism, and so on. Note, however, that most of the terms referring to higher levels of the hierarchy are ambiguous. The loyalty of individuals towards their clan reflects their integrative tendencies, but it enables the clan as a whole to behave in an aggressive, self assertive way. The obedience and devotion to duty of the members of the Nazi SS guard kept the gas chambers going. Patriotism is the virtue of subordinating private interests to the higher interests of the nation. Nationalism is a synonym for the militant expression of those higher interests. The infernal dialectic of this process is reflected throughout human history. It is not accidental the disposition toward such disturbances is inherent in the part-whole polarization of social hierarchies. It may be the unconscious reason why the Romans gave the god Janus such a prominent role in their pantheon as the keeper of doorways, facing both inward and outward, and why they named the first month of the year after him, but it would be premature to go into the subject now. It will be one of our main preoccupations in part three of this volume. For the time being, we are only concerned with the normal, orderly functioning of the hierarchy, where each holon operates in accordance with the code of its rules, without attempting to impose in on others, nor to lose its individuality by excessive subordination. It is only in times of stress that a holon may tend to get out of control, and its normal self-assertiveness changes into aggressiveness, whether the holon is an individual, or a societal class, or a whole nation. The reverse process occurs when the dependence of a holon on its superior controls is so strong that it loses its identity. Readers versed in contemporary psychology will have gathered, even from this incomplete preliminary outline, that in the theory proposed here there is no place for such a thing, as a destructive instinct, nor does it admit the reification of the sexual instinct as the only integrative force in human or animal society. Freud's Eros and Thanatos are relative latecomers in the stage of evolution. A host of creatures that multiply by fission or budding are ignorant of both. In our view, Eros is an offspring of the integrative, destructive Thanatos of the self-assertive tendency and Janus the ultimate ancestor of both the symbol of the dichotomy between partness and wholeness, which is inseparable from the open-ended hierarchies of life. Summary Organisms and societies are multi-leveled hierarchies of semi-autonomous sub wholes branching into sub wholes of a lower order, and so on. The term holon has been introduced to refer to these intermediary entities which, relative to their subordinates in the hierarchy, function as self-contained wholes, relative to their subordinates as dependent parts. This dichotomy of wholeness and partness of autonomy and dependence is inherent in the concept of hierarchic order and is called here the Janus Principle. Its dynamic expression is the polarity of the self-assertive and integrative tendencies. Hierarchies are dissectable into their constituent branches on which the holons form the nodes. The number of levels which a hierarchy comprises is called its depth and the number of holons on any given level its span. Holons are governed by fixed sets of rules and display more or less flexible strategies. The rules of conduct of a social holon are not reducible to the rules of conduct of its members. The reader may find it helpful to consult from time to time Appendix 1, which summarizes the general characteristics of hierarchic systems as proposed in this and subsequent chapters.